Hello and welcome on The Barricades. This is another edition of our show. My name is Bojan Stanislavski. I will be your host. The usual co-host of the show, Dr. Maria Chernad, is here with us. Hello, Maria. Hello. And now to our special guest, Medea Benjamin. Hello, Medea, and thanks so much for taking time to uh, join us here on our show. Nice to be on with you. All right. So uh, for those, uh, there aren't many among our audience, but just in case for those who are not familiar uh, with you and your record, Medea Benjamin is an American peace and social justice activist. Uh, she's also a co-founder of uh, the pro-peace organization called Code Pink, Women for Peace. Uh, and uh, their activities are basically international. Uh, the organization is described as grassroots peace and social justice movement working to end U.S.-funded wars and occupations, to challenge militarism globally, and to redirect resources into healthcare, education, green jobs, and other life-affirming activities. Uh, Medea Benjamin wrote over a dozen books, the most recent one being War in Ukraine, Making Sense of the Senseless Conflict, And uh, I got to confess that I haven't had the chance yet to read that book. I've ordered it and it's on the way. On the way. Uh, Maria, however, has had the chance not only to read the book, but also to publish a review, uh, which is available on our, on our website, uh, thebarricade.online. So, Maria, uh, let's have you start off with uh, questions about the book. Well, I liked it very much. And the thing that I liked most is the fact that both Russia and the US are criticized here, asking two important questions that does one believe that the only way to solve the problems in Ukraine from the Russian perspective was this bloody war. And the second question, does anyone really believe that uh, the best way to Ukraine was to join NATO and abandon the neutrality. And if somebody wants to understand a little bit of what's going on in Ukraine, it's very important to have these questions in mind. Now, um, the uh, book um, has a very interesting chapter on um, the information warfare. And of course, we have information about Russians that are being suppressed since the law in Russia allows protesters and those who criticize um, President Putin and other politicians in power to be actually jailed for 10 years and to be accused of terrorism or of spreading, I don't know, incitement to terrorism, to violence. Um, but the surprising part was that this kind of uh, uh, censorship occurred in, in the West. And we all know that were important journalists who saw their media, social media channels, YouTube channels taken down without prior notice. Now, there is an in interesting aspect here because both in the United States and in Russia, we witness people that oppose the war. Right, Medea, and you describe these people. And of course, some of them uh, faced um, the consequences of their courage, but we don't find many voices from Ukraine also advancing a, a peaceful agenda. And it's very hard to me for me to believe that in a country of nearly 40 million people, there aren't enough pro-peace. Uh, uh, citizens' movement to advance such an idea that peace is needed. So how come we don't see this, these people? This was the first question that came to my mind when I read that, that chapter. Well, it's a great question, and I ask myself that as well. We are in touch with people in Ukraine who are part of the pacifist movement, part of a peace movement, uh, but they say that, that they are small, that Uh, it's hard for them to get people to join because the atmosphere is so much, you know, nationalists. And as you know, people's loved ones are being killed. It's a, a, a very uh, uh, heartfelt uh, uh, situation where it's difficult for people who want to talk about negotiations uh, with the enemy to have the space to do that. I have found a number of Ukrainians in the diaspora, for example, here in the United States that have come to some of my talks. And I expect them to get up and say, you're wrong. 
you know, Russia invaded us. That's all there is. It's black and white. Uh, but uh, for the most part, I found them coming up and agreeing and saying, you know, this is a complicated situation. I can't talk to my family about it. Uh, we have a, a, a very hard time uh, just uh, even speaking to each other right now because my father is pro-Russian and my mother is against Russia and all that kind of thing. And I think this is all to say that because it's such an emotional issue, um, it is very hard in the middle of a war for people who want to talk about negotiations to find the space to do that. And um, I, I know, as you said, that there are a lot of people in Ukraine who agree with the position of negotiations. In fact, there have been uh, uh, opinion polls that have come out that show that in the areas under most attack uh, are the areas where they are more favorable towards negotiations because they want their lives to stop being so horrific. Uh, whereas in the Western part of the country where they're not in the middle of this war, uh, they are more hard line about uh, seeing this war go on until victory. So that's just some uh, points that I have heard and understood from friends inside Ukraine. Right. Well, I think this is, uh, yeah, if I just may, I think this is, this is just the situation. This is the, such is the force of the circumstances. And I remember it also from the Balkan Wars. Uh, I'm talking about the beginning of the 90s in Bosnia and then in 1999, uh, the bombing of Serbia, because I originally come from Bulgaria. And uh, I was, you know, I was there watching the news and sort of discussing with people. And it's always like that. I mean, when people come with machine guns to your home, this is it. Like, you know, you just, uh, you don't come to think about diplomatic solutions and maybe we can sit down and have a coffee or something stronger and can resolve our conflict, right? So this is the problem with the war. It invokes the worst in people. And everyone will tell you that, like, you know, uh, including military people who have been on our channel. I mean, people who are, uh, you know, military experts with military past who have planned or, or took part in planning wars or warlike actions. And, and they say the same. War is not cool. War brings out the worst in people and so on and so forth. So I think this is the situation. And also, you know, when you come to think about the 90s in, in the Balkans, then this is exactly the same thing. I mean, those people who were caught in the fire, they did not want they did not want this to continue. They wanted peace and they wanted peace immediately. And they knew it's possible. And they knew that war is not a solution because war is like the end. That it's not a solution; just pure destruction. So, uh, and those who lived, you know, away from the areas where the war, uh, you know, where, where where the fighting actually took place, then they were the most hawkish kind of. You know, they wanted victory and victory. And and, and you know, actually, it brings me to to ask about uh, the the subtitle of your book because what is victory here? Like, how, how do you make sense? When, on what front, what has to change in order for one side or the other side to actually declare that they, they are victorious in this either war or special military operation, if you want to use the Russian phrasebook for this? So, you know, there is, I mean, we're, we're really caught in a very strange situation. And how do you make sense of this, as you put it in, your, in the subtitle of your book, senseless conflict? How do you, what, what, what was your journey sort of to, to make sense out of it? Well, I was amazed by how many people foresaw this war, uh, how back yeah. in the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s, I mean, for decades now, people who really know the region, people who have been longtime historians, academics, diplomats, experts, they have been saying this is going to destabilize Europe. This is going to lead to a conflict. They have been saying to NATO, don't do it. Don't expand. Don't bring on Ukraine. Uh, these are red lines that cannot be crossed. So that's one uh, avenue in which we say it's a senseless war because at so many times it could have been stopped. It could have been uh, alleviated. People could have sat down and talked to each other. And, you know, what we've learned more recently about the Minsk agreements in that we have Angela Merkel from Germany and Francois Hollande from France saying, 
Uh, We signed these Minsk Accords to give Ukraine time to build up its military is another example about a senseless war, because if they had actually taken that agreement and implemented it, including the political part that would have given the Donbass the autonomy uh, that it was supposed to have, then this war would have been avoided as well. So there are so many steps along the way that could have been taken uh, to stop this conflict from happening. Even if you look up right before the February invasion in December, when Mm -hmm. Russia put out these draft treaties, one to the United States and one to NATO, uh, saying, here are things that we must talk about. And this was basically dismissed by both NATO and the U.S. So again, uh, it was a war foretold. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it justified, but it makes it understandable and all the more uh, critical to do something now before allowing it to move into a wider war. And then you ask, what is victory? Because that's the absolute critical thing to ask. You know, you hear different uh, definitions of victory now from the same people. Uh, there are Anthony Blinken, like the, assessed, the the Secretary of State for the United States, you know, at one point was uh, is saying that victory was when uh, when Ukraine gets back all of the Donbass and Crimea, and then has said things more recently that it means getting back to where things were before the invasion on February 24th of last year. So which is the Uh, definition of victory. Uh, And I understand from the point of view of Zelensky to say victory is getting back everything and that Russia says victory is the uh, recognition of these four territories that we have annexed really belong to us as well as Crimea. But for me, those are negotiating positions. The critical issue is How do you get them at the peace table so that these diametrically opposed views, including one that says, Ukraine, we want to be fast track into NATO, and the other says, absolutely no way. How do you get them to the table? Yeah, and how do you you walk back? How do you walk back all those, you know, words that were words of hostility that were spoken between, you know, against Russia mostly? How do you walk it all back in order to be able to sit in a cultured manner? And kind of you know speak to each other. This is this I think very difficult. But of course, Maria, please you go. I have a few yes, questions. Yes, um, one of the most uh, interesting things also that uh, uh, I, I want to bring uh, out now is this uh, concept of unrealistic expectations, because NATO says that they have an open door policy. And if a sovereign nation wants to join, who are they to tell them not to? But in the case of um, Ukraine, I think they pushed for the unrealistic expectation that Ukraine will become a NATO member and Russia will just accept it. It will just be fine. And as much as I would like this narrative to be true and every sovereign nation to make their own choices, um, there is an element here of, um, of a very perverse nature. I mean, you encourage a nation into believing and into um, making all these claims and having all these unrealistic expectations. And then... When things turned out the way they did in Ukraine and you end up with a very violent war, then what do you do? So I think we should discuss more about this, you know, um, covering of unrealistic expectations into the so-called right of self-determination. Yeah, there's a couple of things I'd like to bring up about that, uh, which is, 
when the talks were happening between Russia and Ukraine at the uh, early stages of this war, as we write in our book, we talk about Boris Johnson, the head of the UK at that time, and even the Secretary of Defense from the United States, Lloyd Austin, going and talking to Zelensky and basically saying, why are you even negotiating with Russia? Don't come up with agreement. Go for the victory. Go for getting everything back. And we will be with you there. Uh, and also this idea that the war is to weaken Russia is a very cynical one because it means we will let you Ukrainians uh, die in this war. We will provide the bullets, we will provide the weapons, but our real goal is to weaken Russia. And if you broaden that out even more, I would say the uh, even bigger goal is to weaken Russia so that Russia can't be a strong ally with China because the U.S. has put its sights on China as the number one adversary. So there are geopolitical uh, interests at stake here that make the Ukrainians the victim in this. And then in terms of what you said about every country should have the right to join in whatever military alliances they want, here in the United States, we have a border with Mexico and the United States for 200 years now has had something called the Monroe Doctrine, which was originally to keep Europe out of Latin America and to make sure that the United States was the dominant force uh, in the continent and that no outside military agreements could be made. Uh, the United States was the hegemonic power. And if Mexico had decided today even to go into a military alliance with China or with Russia, it would be unthinkable. There would immediately be a war about that because the United States would not let that, that happen. So like it or not, larger countries, and Russia is one, have their own interests, have their own what they consider their security interests, uh, and they don't want an outside military power uh, and a super strong military alliance like NATO on their doorstep. Yes, I just want a, a quick comment here. Well, I would love, as you said, for every country to have this right, but on a pragmatic level, as a politician, you cannot just daydream about joining an alliance and then projecting this illusion and saying that everything will be fine. Because this is not how it works. And you have to deal with reality, not with this type of wishful thinking, okay? It will be fantastic if this would be the case. But this is unfortunately not the world we live in. No, and we will... are not going to change it by, by you know, uh, uh, putting our citizens at such a, a, a severe risk of being, you know, in a war. I, I just want to say that I don't think there will ever be any kind of world where people are free to make all kinds of choices they like without, uh, you know, looking at what effects it's going to have on other people, other nations. We other may hope, we may hope it's an ideal. No, I, I don't hope for that. I think this is no, but, but seriously, I, I don't think this is good. Like people should care about their neighbors, their neighboring countries, their neighboring societies, their everyone. Like it's not about, you know, we cannot make it all about Ukraine. This is how they want to present it, that it's all about Ukraine. No, it's not all about Ukraine. Ukraine is just part of the whole structure here, and it's a very problematic one, of course, because this is where the war is happening right now. But I don't think that it's good. Like, uh, I mean, I don't think it, it's good to encourage anyone to think only about themselves, especially in politics, but not only in politics. I mean, Ukraine is free to join whomever they want, whenever they like. Well, in theory, of course, I mean, this is the paradigm, okay, that we've developed, like, as a civilizational kind of uh you know consensus and that's that that's all right but it doesn't mean it can be you know freely applied everywhere without taking into consideration things like especially if you have russia which is a major nuclear power okay a superpower whatever you want to call it and and you know regardless of what what, what they think you're going to join nato or join out of nato or step out of this or step in some other uh you know constellation i don't think it's 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 possible and i don't think anyone had ever believed that this is really the case. I think it has to do a lot with the cynicism that uh, Maria, uh, that Madia 
uh, spoke about that this is just cynical. The West is not supporting Ukraine, in my opinion. The West is just using Ukraine for its own purposes. And, you know, you can argue whether it's more geopolitical, more military, more economic, more whatever, but this is the situation. And, you know, when you come to what you said, Maria, about the, uh, you know, to, to make a nation believe that, you know, everything can basically be spinned around them, like, you know, their NATO membership in, in case of Ukraine and stuff. Look, Someone has done this, okay? Because when you look back 15 years ago, for example, the polls in Ukraine with regards to their NATO membership, they were not so straight. I mean, some people were in favor, some people were against, there was a lot of discussion about it, but there was no polarization with regards to that, only along the lines of the ter territorial, kind of territorial, social, cultural division. And I think this is something that would be good to talk about because Medea... When we ask the question, what could be the victory, obviously we cannot answer it because we don't know what's in the heads of all those people sitting on the general staff in Russia or, you know, all those bureaucrats in America or the military brass in America and, and, and all the more we don't know what's in Zelensky's head. But I think that if we want to look realistically and if you want to be uh, consistently leftist, so to say, then we have to look at what people want. And this is something, this is, in my opinion, the starting, this should be the starting point. And I wonder whether you would agree with me, but, you know, everybody now is talking about this, you know, the, the, the same, the, the kind of the sanctity of the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And okay, I stand for territorial integrity of countries in general, but, you know, the people there, especially one year into the war, are not so fond of territorial integrity of Ukraine. So perhaps this is not the best postulate at the moment, at least. And, you know, when I go through all kinds of, you know, forums, I'm talking about open forums, those that I can understand, you know, uh, I, 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 I speak Russian so I can read that, uh, of, of all the migrants that are, you know, in Poland, for example, or in Slovakia, I'm talking Ukraine, migrants from Ukraine who have fled the war, the refugees, basically. What they are talking about is that, okay, there's been so much talk... There's been so much talk of self-determination, okay? And where is the self-determination for us? Because, you know, in this, in this atmosphere, all those hostilities have produced, we cannot go back to Russia. I mean, some people who identify as Russian or close to Russia, they will go back home, you know, regardless of whether it's going to be Russia or Eastern Ukraine or whatever. They don't care so much about that. But those people who are not fond of Russia, who are hostile to Russia, who have always been linked to Western Ukraine, I mean, those people, they also deserve a solution. You know, and if they want us, if they keep saying and they keep repeating that I see that on, on all kinds of forums, where is the self-determination for us? We also want to be, you know, Galicians or we want to be, you know, Ukrainians or West Ukrainians or something. And, and I wonder whether anyone is discussing that, including the friends that you mentioned that you speak to. I mean, the Ukrainians that you, you, you've been in touch with, Medea. Well, you know, this issue of self-determination is a complicated one. What is the self-determination for people in the Donbass? What is the self-determination for people in Crimea? And yet when you talk about uh, what are the solutions, I think those solutions have been outlined time and time again. Solutions are that Ukraine has to be neutral, that uh, there will be internationally supervised referenda in the Donbass, that the line of where the demarcation is will be determined at the peace table, that the issues of Crimea will be put off uh, for a number of years because it's really not a critical issue right now. Uh, and uh, then I think there are things that the United States could do that would uh, help to give, um, help to change the uh, balance of power in the region and make Russia feel that its interests were being taken into account. For example, looking at the 100,000 troops that the U.S. has in, in Europe, looking at all of the bases, including uh, Poland right 100 miles from Russia's border, uh, including all of the nuclear-armed uh, countries that are in Europe thanks to the U.S. arming them. I mean, these are all issues that should be brought into the mix uh, when we talk about uh, how do we unravel this and how do we give both to Zelensky and to Putin enough compromises, enough, quote, wins that they can sell this to their people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, another thing very important in the book, I really like the, the last chapter that is about nuclear uh, uh, war, nuclear weapons. And um, I think it's, it's very dangerous. And I want you to elaborate a little bit on this hypothesis that was actually presented 
guess by whom? Rand Corporation that issued a report just these days saying exactly what you said. Now, as a side note here, I mean, if you were saying, if you were saying the things that the Rand Corporation is saying today, you would have been smeared as a pro-Putin puppet, uh, propaganda. Oh, you would be. You would be anyway. <laughs> you would be anyway. But they are saying what you are saying in the book, is, and it's very important because it may seem very generous to help Ukrainians with weapons. Let aside the thing that there are private companies, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon. Let's say they are doing it out of generosity. Okay. The problem is that that would only lead to the following situation. Russia would probably exhaust its conventional arsenal if we are again to believe the what the Westerners are saying that they have far more weapons than Russia has. Okay, so they exhaust the conventional weapons. Then what? They are going to use the nuclear one, right? Well, yes, it was so interesting to see this RAND study that, as you say, basically came out with the same kind of things that so many of us have been saying. Uh, and yet we are labeled Putin apologists for saying that. Uh, something I find very uh, strange when I talk to people is that they say Putin is so irrational. He's such a, uh, a loose cannon uh, that you can't trust him, you can't, uh, you don't know what he's going to be doing. And then they say, on the other hand, but he's not going to use nuclear weapons. He wouldn't be that stupid to nu use nuclear weapons. And as we see in this RAND report, they lay out a very rational uh, steps that would end up with Russia using a nuclear weapon. And I think um, that this report uh, is something that I hope people throughout the power structure in the United States will read. Some people were saying uh, that this was perhaps even commissioned by the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who is the one who came out about two months ago saying that Ukraine uh, had gone about as far as it could on the battlefield and that now was the time for negotiations. And people just attacked him for saying that. Uh, and um, this this RAND study basically lays out in great detail what are the different options, and none of them are good. We just saw how the United States pushed Germany and all of Europe uh, to be giving these tanks, and immediately when that was okayed, then Zelensky came back with the, uh, the uh, fighter jets, and immediately they said, no, we're not going to do that, and you know, of course, we've seen that uh, those Before. red lines crossed over and over and over again. Uh, and so where does this all lead? And a rational study like this RAN one says, you know, this does lead to uh, a nuclear war, a wider war, and steps must be taken now to avoid that. Yeah, totally. And I, I got to say that this is this, one of the weirdest observations that I have you know, that I made over the last uh, year where NATO and the West, they set up sort of red lines for themselves not to cross and they actually go ahead and cross them, you know, a month or a couple of weeks later. So yeah, uh, if they say this is a red line, we're not doing it, then you got, you yeah. know, they're about to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, so uh, I wonder, okay, so fighter jets now and that's going to be crossed off in a couple of weeks. Fine. Now who's going to operate them? Like, where are they going to be taking off from? You know, this is all very interesting because uh, if they are to operate from Ukrainian soil, then they will be destroyed before they even take off. If they, you know, start from Poland or from Romania, then, you know, there's enough, you know, let's, let's just leave aside all those fairy tales that Russia doesn't have enough weapons and stuff like that. You know, uh, there is one Bulgarian professor, I come originally from Bulgaria, whom I discussed with recently, and he said that people, you know, in Europe, they like to tap themselves on the arm and say like, oh, there is not enough Russian rockets. There is enough Russian missiles for everyone. No worries. You know, so this is this is a very dangerous way to go. And I think that they are deluding themselves that, you know, Russia is weak because they've been repeating this mantra so much that they believe their own propaganda that Russia is weak, while Russia is savage, Russia is nothing but Moscow and Peter, uh, and St. Petersburg, Russia is, what, what did they call it even? 
uh, gas station masquerading as a, as a state or something like this. They, 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 and I believe that some part of the Western, especially American establishment, believes this. And this is a very dangerous uh, thing. And at the same time, you know, they are feeding the public contradictory information, like you said. On the one hand, Putin is mad. Putin is like crazy. Putin can do all kinds of things, but he will never use nuclear weapons. This is this is out of the cards. You know, this is this is completely nonsensical. But I want to go back, you know, I want to go back to what you said about the international uh, resolution or the international um, supervision over the kind of potential resolution of the war, which obviously has to end in some kind of negotiations. And I think that, you know, those referendums, it, yeah, probably, I mean, it sounds logical and, and intellectually consistent. It makes sense to have them, but I think it makes sense to have them not only in Ukraine's east, you know, but also in, in Ukraine's West, because as I said, those people who live in the West, they, they are not getting any agency either. I mean, people speak about Ukraine, Ukraine, you know, as if it is just one organism and it has always been two. And now it's even probably more than that in the sense that, uh, you know, those, those people from, from around Lvov, those people who live close to the, uh, to the Polish, uh, or, or Romanian or Hungarian border, they also deserve a solution. They also should take part in some referendum and they also should say what kind of Ukraine they want to live in because for the politicians it might be that yes we're going to take Crimea we're going to take the Donbass back and all the rest of it but the ordinary people who are in exile now because because of the war they understand it's not hap- it's not going to be happening that way and they they also are looking for some kind of solutions and I think this has to be acknowledged and this has to be attended and this has to be honored kind of in a sense that you know those people got to be given a chance to speak in about the future of the country that they want to go back to do you do you agree with this Yes, absolutely. As we said in the beginning of this program, there is so much censorship uh, in, uh, of course, in Russia, but also in Ukraine, that it's hard to tell what people want. And then with the huge numbers of people who are outside of the country, um, they have to be taken into account as well. I remember when it was in the early stages of negotiations in Uh, in late March, early April, and when there was progress being made with the talks with Russia, Zelensky saying that he would take an agreement back to the people Mm -hmm. uh, to get their sense of it. And I think that is very important that, um, as you say, there are different Ukraines right now, despite all of this rah-rah that we are one, uh, and that has to take, be taken into account and people have to get a chance to discuss what is important for them and, you know, I wish we could know right now what uh, people think is worth losing their lives over, because uh, maybe what they thought was worth it early on is no longer the case as we come up to this one year of war with no end in sight. And, you know, we talked about how the West is using Ukraine, but I, I do want to um, mention that I think that the U.S. is using the West, uh, is using Europe, and um, that Europeans really have not gotten a chance to have a say about this. And and in a a very perfidious manner, because when you come to think about the historical analogies between, you know, German tanks named after big cats fighting Russia on this very territory, which used to be Ukraine or still is, you know, Western Eastern Ukraine, whatever, this is something that triggers certain, you know, elements of the Russian mentality that the West has no idea about. The West has no idea about Russian culture uh, in general, but they have no idea about the role of the great patriotic war they fought against the Nazi uh, Germany. And, and you know, as much as you want to, you know, attach the kind of political element to the whole thing, Nazi Germany, it was Germany, and it is Germany again with the same black crosses on their military equipment. So this is something that is very, very perfidious and, and, and cynical, I think, here. Absolutely. And here in the United States, people are clueless about how this appears to people in Russia because people in the United States are clueless about Russia's losses during World War II. Uh, they call Putin a Nazi. And uh, I, I think this lack of sensitivity about losing 26 million people in a war that is still in the memories of people in Russia today uh, is something that uh, is very, um, uh, it, it's another dangerous um, lack of knowledge uh, among the people who are 
feeding and fueling this war. I want to ask something about censorship because I'm a media theorist and I remember even since I was a student, professors, researchers used to tell us that banning a media, closing down TV stations is not the way forward. And why is that? Not because we cherish freedom of speech. Of course, we cherish that, but that because citizens are rational enough to make their own choices. So we don't have to act as, and the state doesn't have to act like a national nanny telling people what to do. Uh, They are able to make their own choices. So how is this paradigm, you know, and why is it changing? Because nowadays what we are seeing is that All of a sudden, the American citizens are to be protected. And this is why we have, we as the establishment, have to close down all sorts of uh, Russian media to protect the citizens. And I find this so bizarre, isn't it? Well, yes, but it's also bizarre to talk about uh, freedom of the press in the United States where the major press is owned by a couple of corporations. And while we think we're getting different views on the three main cable networks, when it comes to these life and death issues like Ukraine, we're really getting a very similar viewpoint on all of these and in all of the mainstream press publications as well. So there's already a censorship that goes on internally by these organizations. And then on top of that, to have the more overt censorship, well, let's face it, I don't think many people in the United States uh, ever listened to what was Russia Today, now RT. Uh, but um, it now, when this war is happening, it would be very useful for people to be able to see that because you should see what your adversary is telling their own people. Uh, You should see the other side so that you just get a chance to have a more broad-based view about what this war is all about. So in addition to the censorship of, uh, of capitalist monopolies in the media, we now have this overt censorship. And it's also happening on Facebook and Twitter and social media in general. Yeah, that's the worst. You, you know, I think that it's very interesting when Maria brought up and said that suddenly now the American people have to be protected from this influence or that influence. And OK, because it's in the interest, of course, of the political establishment of the United States or the current political establishment of the United States. So this is the real explanation that they're not bringing forward. But, you know, how come no one protected the people from Ukraine from like pro-NATO propaganda? Like, you know, call it what you like, like information war, propaganda, you know, whatever. But no one has protected them. Right. And, you know, maybe someone will ask the question, maybe they should have been protected. Maybe And, you know, if we go down that path, then everybody has to basically uh, everybody has to somehow, you know, lock themselves up in their own bubble of, uh, you know, of censorship. And, and everybody's going to stay there, which is a completely, you know, a meaningless concept, basically. Uh, but, but then, you know, it, it's also the West. Let, let's be honest. I mean, they're making it very easy for the Russian narrative, the Russian propaganda, call it whatever you, what you like. Because if you get Annalena Baerbock, which is the foreign minister of Germany, the top diplomat of the most important country in Europe, goes out and says, we're fighting a war with Russia, not among each other. You've heard that phrase, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you know, the Russian propaganda, uh, you know, in they don't have to do much. They just go ahead and write a headline, the American, oh, sorry, not the American. Uh, what a flip of the tongue, by the way. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the German uh, foreign minister says that they are at war with Russia. And of course, it's making the headlines all over the Russian media. And I'm not surprised because this is, this is what's like. Then you get Lloyd Austin going out and saying, we want to weaken Russia. Like, you know, I mean, they're really making it very easy for them. And then afterwards, they are complaining that, oh, this is disinformation. We have to block it. Like, this is, you know, this is a ridiculous concept, really. Well, right. And uh, there are um, uh, other times when U.S. officials have said in the past, if uh, we get back Crimea, uh, that will really help to uh, weaken Putin. And uh, this is a a step in regime change. And uh, all of these comments have, as you said, fed into the Russian narrative. Um, And it's not a false narrative anymore. They are at war uh, with the West. I mean, 
yes, there are not large numbers of uh, Western troops on the ground in Ukraine coming from NATO countries, but there is everything but. <clears throat> and we know there are trainers there, there are special ops people there, there, uh, there are mercenaries from the West, but you know all of these weapons, and it's not just the weapons. I think people sometimes forget all of the economic money that we're giving to Ukraine that allows it to function as a state. And if that spigot was cut, there would be an immediate in incentive for Zelensky to be sitting down at the negotiating table because he wouldn't have another option. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I think. You know, if the United States wanted it, they could have ended it by tomorrow. One phone call to Zelensky, it's over, man. No more weapons, no more tanks, nothing. Forget about it. Sit at the table and discuss. I think that that really could have been over within 24 hours. However, you know, I, I wonder if you could tell us, because you said many things about, you know, the the background of the war and, uh, you know, even now you you listed out certain elements like, you know, foreign or American or Western trainers or, you know, uh, special op people and stuff like that. And uh, I wonder to what extent the, the public opinion in America is familiar with those facts, because, you know, they are a matter of public record. Not, not, of course, they are not publicized to the extent that <clears throat> other things are. Uh, but I wonder, like, you know, especially vis-a-vis -vis all the transfers of money, weapons, and all the rest of it, like, how are people taking it? Because I understand that you can wave the flag of democracy and autocracy versus democracy, and we have to help Ukraine because savage Russians. I understand all those things, but, you know, it has a there's, a, there's a capacity that seems to be getting exhausted, or maybe it's just my observation here. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm observing it from across the pond. So I don't, it's, it's not very detailed and precise, but I just wonder, I just, how, how long can you take it? Like, I mean, as public opinion in America, how, how, how invested are, are, are the people there? And are they contesting or are they beginning to contest all those, you know, decisions, which, you know, those people, they don't seem to have a reverse gear. It's just, you know, one tra installment of money after another, you know, uh, 15 helicopters, 20 missiles, 100 tanks, you know, it's constantly growing and it's an escalation, escalating kind of cascading thing. So I wonder how do the Americans uh, react and whether the reaction has changed uh, over the course of the last year since the war began? Well, there are some opinion polls that have been taken asking the same kind of question over and over and checking month by month. And the opposition to this blank check is going up and up. Uh, but uh, they are still bombarded with this idea that victory is around the corner and that if we just pour in you know, more and more millions, billions, uh, then Ukraine will win. So that counters it. But as you said, uh, this can't go on forever. The Republicans that now control one of the chambers of Congress, the House, uh, they have talked about uh, being more uh, concerned about this blank check. They're going to have hearings. They want to know where all this money is going. But it is in the base among the American people that there is starting to be more questioning. And when you get people like Donald Trump, who is the ultimate uh, uh a, a person who takes advantage of any situation for his own benefit, uh, he is saying that in 24 hours he would end this. He would talk to Putin. This would be over. Well, you know, he's saying that for a reason. He's saying that because his base is tired of this war, uh, doesn't want to keep giving billions of dollars. You know, it's been over a hundred billion dollars. Uh, that's a lot of money. And uh, his base is questioning that as are some of the others in the more extreme right end of the Republican Party. What is making my head explode in all of this is how the Democrats and those who call themselves progressive, those who have been anti-war with us in the past for decades, uh, are now falling in line following Biden and afraid to speak up to even talk about negotiations, much right. less talk about no more blank check for Ukraine. And that has made it very, very difficult for us to organize an anti-war movement in the United States. Yes, right, Maria, go with the last question, it? perhaps. Let's just yeah. that. How do you explain it? I mean, what's wrong with them? What do they risk? Is the security apparatus so powerful that they can just go to AOC and say, 
look, lady, you are going to say this or we are going to do this and that to you. Are they so powerful or are these people such cowards? I think there's another element at play, which is that uh, they are smart politicians and recognize that uh, taking the correct position is not going to bring them much gain because the majority of people in the United States don't care about foreign policy, don't look at foreign policy, don't pay attention to foreign policy. And if you are a politician who wants to please your supporters, you're going to be talking about health care issues, about living wage issues, about uh, social security benefits and things that affect people in their obvious daily lives. I mean, you know, you spend $100 billion for war, you're not spending it on people's needs, but they don't see that. So I think these politicians have uh, made their own personal calculations, and I think they have been cowed by their own party uh, to say, leave the foreign policy issues up to the president, the people who know about these issues, So the claim that the American president knows about these issues in the present state is also a bit over the top for me, but okay. Well, even to claim that the National Security Council or the people, you know, that are advising him, uh, when the the top advisor was Mark Milley, who said go for negotiations, and he has been silenced. Uh, and uh, the other people that are, are, are talking directly to Biden are the ones who don't know the situation. Uh, it makes you very concerned about who he is listening to. But in any case, uh, these politicians, I think, are told that national security is an executive issue. Stay away, stay out of this. Don't show the party as being weak and divided on issues of national security. Yeah, although I, I got to say that for me, there is element of cowardice also in the whole thing, because when you come to think of this letter, which was issued, I don't remember how many months ago that they signed, it was very moderate letter in its in the message it con- it conveyed, like, you know, let's just consider negotiation, let's consider diplomacy. And they had walking back publicly afterwards in a very humiliating manner. So this is this is really an element of like for me, there's like an ethical breakdown here. I mean this Absolutely, you're right. There is definitely a, an an issue of cowardice as well. And uh I think the fact that people who signed the letter started looking for any excuse to take their names off to say, well I signed it back earlier on when I thought victory wasn't possible, that the Russians were winning, but now the Ukrainians are winning. So why should there be negotiations? Uh, is, yeah, that's you know, called situational ethics, by the way, absolutely. which is something that we've departed from, you know. So this is absolutely. not a good way to explain your position. But okay. You know, the other thing that, that uh, baffles me is that the one person who signed that letter who kept to the position, his name is Ro Khanna, he's a congressman from California, Uh, he went on CNN and he said, well, of course, uh, negotiations is the, the, the way this has to go. He got tremendous support. We went to him and to his chief of staff and said, oh, my goodness, did you get all this, you know, bad feedback about how you're a Putin apologist? He said, no, we got great support, not only from our constituents, but from all over the country. In fact, they're talking about him as a Senate candidate, as a presidential candidate, you know, not just for this, of course, but for other issues. Um, And so why wouldn't the others look at him and say, ah, if he got such good Uh, feedback. Why don't we stick our necks out as well? And then all of these other factors come in there. But we are trying hard. Believe me, I am going personally to their offices, taking copies of my book, um, asking them nicely, you know, please go back to your original instinct of calling for negotiations because that was the right one to have. And, um, you know, now, now what they are being told is, Do you want to look like you are supporting the extreme right of the Republican Party or that you are supporting Donald Trump? <laughs> so it's a new set of uh, goalposts that have been putting no. up, uh, they've put up there, which are you don't want to take a position that makes you look like these other crazy people, do you? Yeah, we- 
which is which is ridiculous because I support the policy regardless of who is going to implement it. If people are going to stop dying, then you know even if the devil himself is going to sign this uh, you know bill into action, then I will I will support it. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, let me bring up another issue that has divided many of us. Uh, here is a, a an anti-war protest that's been called for f- February 19th. It's called Rage Against the War, and it's being put together by a group on the left called the People's Party and a libertarian group, what's called the Libertarian Party. And they've invited a variety of speakers and all hell is broken loose. I was going to be a speaker. I've been uh, so um, uh, pushed by people uh, to say, don't speak, don't speak, that I'm probably going to take myself off of the list uh, because Uh, this person doesn't like this speaker, and this speaker has said bad things about trans people and gay people, and this speaker said some bad things about this and that. And so we're just eating ourselves up instead of saying we need a big tent of anybody who wants to push our government to call for negotiations. Uh, instead, so many other issues have come up. Yeah, and I just yeah. want to say for the end of the program I, that we admire your your work, your stubbornness, your kind of protest performances. You know, there's a the, you've got a big fan club in Eastern Europe. Just so you know, Medea, this is this is this is very important. So whenever you you uh, you know you get a chance to to visit Europe, please be sure to visit our countries as well. We're going to organize a you know proper speaking tour for you, and you're going to be amazed. <laughs> Wonderful! Uh, I would love to come. I look forward to that. Right, right. And for the very last uh, 30 seconds of the program, Adia, where can people find uh, find your work? So uh, go on to the peaceinukraine.org website, as well as codepink.org website, and you can follow us and get involved with us. And we are now working in a broad coalition to work with uh, people in Europe on this issue. So I look forward to staying in touch. All right. Thank you, Adia, very much. Thank you for thank you. Uh, taking the time. And thank you to all our viewers and listeners. Please, if you consider this show important and interesting, then uh, consider the subscribing and hitting all the like buttons and other buttons that make sense depending on the, which platform you're listening or watching our program for. And uh, if, you, uh, if you feel you can afford it, then you can go ahead and support us financially via our Patreon page, PayPal page, or via our Substack account where you can purchase <clears throat> paid subscriptions. So thank you once again. All the links are in the description box and we'll see you in the next segment. Thank you.